But even then, as the flesh will lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, so salvation in every case will then be as much a triumph of grace over nature as now. Page 393 Chapter 10 Page 58 The millennial age approaches by imperceptible degrees. The golden age of righteousness is, of course, not to be thought of as beginning suddenly or on any particular date. It cannot be pinpointed on the calendar, for it comes as the result of a long, slow process. The kingdom of heaven cometh not with observation. Luke 17:20. It is first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. Mark 4:28. Or again, it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Isaiah 28:10. The coming of the millennium is like the coming of summer, although ever so much more slowly and on a much grander scale. In the struggle between the seasons, there are many advances and many apparent setbacks. Time and again the first harbingers of spring appear, only to be overcome by the winter winds. It often seems that the struggle has been lost and that the cold of winter will never be broken. But gradually the moderate spring breezes take over and after a time we find ourselves in the glorious summer season. Trying to pinpoint the date on which the millennium begins is like trying to distinguish the day or year when medieval history ended and modern history began. The discovery of America by Columbus usually is taken as the landmark dividing the two. At least for us as Americans, that is where medievalism ends and where the story of America begins. But that discovery made no immediate change in the life of the world and in fact Columbus himself died without ever knowing that he had discovered a new world. In retrospect and for convenience we arbitrarily choose a date as the division point between two eras. But in reality one such age blends into another so slowly and so imperceptibly that no change is recognizable at the time. Only with the perspective of history can we look back and set an approximate date, perhaps within a century or two, after when one era ceased and another began. So it is with the coming of the millennium. Undoubtedly it will follow the law of all the other great periods in the history of the church being gradual and uncertain in its approach. We find that time and again during the church age there has been progress toward higher moral and spiritual standards only to suffer tragic setbacks through a series of wars or retrogressions. Looked at from the standpoint of present-day events, it may not be possible to say which way the tides are moving. But over the centuries there is progress, great progress if we look back 500 or 1,000 or 2,000 years. Certainly many of those who tell us that the world is getting worse would change their minds very quickly if they suddenly found themselves back in colonial days or in the Dark Ages, or in the pre-Christian era. The following paragraph by Dr. William Hendrickson, professor in Calvin Seminary, in regard to the binding of Satan in Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3, is much to the point. We differ with Dr. Hendrickson only in that we regard the millennial age as belonging primarily to a future era, while he is an amillennialist, understands it as embracing the entire church age but that is beside the point. Says he, The church has become international. The international church is very powerful, 
like a mighty army moves the church of God. The particularism of the Old Testament has made place for the universalism of the New. The Bible just recently was translated into its thousandth tongue. The influence of the gospel upon the thought and life of mankind can scarcely be overestimated. In some countries, the blessed truth of Christianity affects life in all its phases, political, economic, social, and intellectual. Only the individual who lacks the historical sense and is therefore unable to see the present in the light of conditions which prevailed throughout the world before Christ's ascension can fail to appreciate the glories of the millennial age in which we are now living. Truly the prophecy found in Psalm 72 is being fulfilled before our very eyes. A quote from More Than Conquerors, page 227. We have made much progress during the Christian era, but still, on post-millennial grounds, it hardly seems that even in the most advanced nations of the earth we have seen anything that is worthy of being called more than the early dawn of the millennium. We might say that as yet we still are engaged primarily in laying the foundation rather than building the superstructure. Some are millennialists, as we have just seen, deny that there is to be a future golden age on either post- or premillennial principles, and hold instead that the term embraces the entire period between the first and second coming of Christ. We believe, however, that while we are making progress, we still have a long distance to go, and that the millennium will be something much more advanced and glorious than anything that has yet been seen. We hold that Christ is not merely the potential victor, but the actual victor over sin. During the interadventual reign, he is steadily putting into effect the victory that he has won, gradually overcoming the forces of evil until all his enemies shall have been made the footstool of his feet. Acts 2.35 The dispensation in which we now are is a period of advancing conquest, so that when he returns it is to a converted world. Appropriate here are the words of Dr. Samuel G. Craig. Certainly on the basis of Scripture we are warranted in looking forward to a period relatively golden as compared with that which we now enjoy. Christ is today the head of the kingdom, a kingdom that is not merely engaged in conflict with evil, but that is triumphing over evil. We are today living in the midst of a period that is relatively golden as measured with the period in the midst of which the New Testament was written. Moreover, Christ is to go on conquering and to conquer until the kingdoms of this world shall have become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, until in fact the prayer he taught his disciples to pray shall have been realized. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven so on earth. A quote from Jesus as he was and is, page 278. A truly Christianized world was the goal set before the disciples by Christ himself, for he said, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations. And that this might be a long, slow process was indicated by the form of the promise that he gave in connection with that command. Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Matthew 28:20. The leaven is to work until it leavens the whole lump. The kingdom, like the little mustard seed, is to grow until it becomes a tree. Here, too, is to be found the fulfillment of the promise, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Jehovah as the waters cover the sea. 
Isaiah 11 verse 9. John gives us the prophecy that the devil shall be bound for a thousand years, that he should deceive the nations no more. Revelation 20 verse 3. And that this latter prophecy relates not to the intermediate state, nor to the eternal order, but to the present world order, should be clear from the fact that John saw the angel coming down out of heaven to the earth, and from the fact that the nations, entities which relate to this present world order, are specifically mentioned. The nations as such have no place in the heavenly kingdom. The earth during the present dispensation never can, of course, become paradise regained, but a Christianized world can afford a foretaste of heaven and earnest of the good things that God has in store for those who love him. In principle, Christians already are partakers of the heavenly life. They have been born anew or born from above, John 3, 3. They have been made alive, whereas they formerly were dead through trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1. They are partakers of a heavenly calling, Hebrews 3, 1. They have tasted of the heavenly gift, Hebrews 6, 4. Their citizenship is in heaven, Philippians 3.20. And Paul says that already God has raised us up with him and made us to sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians 2.6. When we are born anew, we are born into the kingdom and partake of the preliminary benefits of the kingdom, even in this world. Hence we see the world progressing slowly but surely toward an appointed goal. Much progress has been made. Already the beams of the rising sun of righteousness are beginning to displace the darkness and confusion and wretchedness and ruin that they are destined to chase away. So Dr. Warfield, according to the New Testament, this time in which we live is precisely the time in which our Lord is conquering the world to himself. And it is the completion of this conquest which, as it marks the completion of his redemptive work, so it sets the time for his return to earth to consummate his kingdom and establish it in its eternal form. A quote from an article, The Gospel of the Second Coming, in The Bible Magazine, April 1915. Chapter 11, page 61. The Thousand Years, a Symbolical Figure. As we read the book of Revelation, figurative or symbolical expressions are met on every hand. The churches are symbolized by the seven golden candlesticks. Seven spirits before the throne are used to symbolize the fullness of the one Holy Spirit. We read of the Lamb having seven horns. We do not expect to see a literal Lamb, nor seven literal horns, but we know that this symbolizes the fullness of the power of Christ. Twelve is the number of the church, and wherever the church is mentioned we have this number or its multiple. 12 apostles, 24 elders, or the totality of God's people symbolized by the number 144,000. In the Bible, the number 10 stands for rounded totals. Hence, we have the moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments. Ten plagues on Egypt, each directed at a god worshipped by the Egyptians, showed the complete superiority of the god of the Hebrews over the gods of Egypt. In the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies the place in which God manifested his presence was ten cubits long, ten cubits wide, and ten cubits high. The cube with all sides equal symbolizes perfection. 
A thousand is the cube of ten and symbolizes vastness of number or time. In Psalm 50 verse 10 the expression the cattle upon a thousand hills does not mean that only the cattle on a thousand hills are the Lord's but that all of the cattle on all of the hills of the world are his. When the Lord told Peter that he should forgive his brother not seven times but seventy times seven Matthew 18.22 he did not mean 490 times but that he should forgive him as many times as he sincerely asked to be forgiven. The New Jerusalem of which we read in Revelation 21 is pictured as a city in the form of a cube 12,000 furlongs 1,500 miles on an edge a figure which symbolizes perfection, grandeur, and vastness. The length and breadth and the height are equal, says John. The city was surrounded by a wall 144 cubits high, 12 squared, or 216 feet, which to the people to whom John wrote would symbolize absolute safety. Neither the shape nor the dimensions of the city can be taken with mathematical exactness as if it were a gigantic apartment house. In Revelation 20, we do not understand John to write of a literal dragon or of a literal serpent. Nor do we understand him to say that the angel has a literal key or a literal chain in his hand with which he binds the devil. The thousand years is quite clearly not to be understood as an exact measure of time, but rather as a symbolical number. Strict arithmetic has no place here. The term is a figurative expression indicating an indefinitely long period of time, a complete, perfect number of years, probably not less than a literal 1,000 years, in all probability very much longer. It is often, however, a definitely limited period during which certain events happen and after which certain other events are to follow. Concerning the symbolism of numbers, Dr. Warfield says, it is quite certain that the number 1,000 represents in Bible symbolism absolute perfection and completeness, and that the symbolism of the Bible includes also the use of a period of time in order to express the idea of greatness in connection with thoroughness and completeness. It can scarcely be necessary to insist here afresh on the symbolical use of numbers in the Apocalypse and the necessity consequently laid upon the interpreter to treat them consistently not merely as symbols, but as embodying definite ideas. They constitute a language, and like any other language, they are misleading unless intended and read as expressions of definite ideas. When the seer says seven, or four, or three, or ten, he does not name these numbers at random, but expresses by each a specific norm. The sacred number seven in combination with the equally sacred number three forms the number of holy perfection, ten. And when this ten is cubed into a thousand, the seer has said all that he could say to convey to our minds the idea of absolute completeness. It is of more importance, doubtless, however, to illustrate the use of time periods to the idea of completeness. Ezekiel 39 verse 9 provides an instance. There, the completeness of the conquest of Israel over its enemies is expressed by saying that seven years shall be consumed in the burning up of the debris of battle. They shall go forth, we read, and shall make fires of the weapons and burn them, both the shields and the bucklers, the bows and the arrows, 
and the handstaves and the spears and they shall make fires of them seven years it were absurd to suppose that it is intended that the fires shall actually endure seven years we have here only a hyperbole to indicate the greatness of the mass to be consumed and the completeness of the consumption a somewhat similar employment of the time phrase to express the idea of greatness is found in the twelfth verse of the same chapter where after the defeat of Gog and all his multitude it is said and seven months shall the children of Israel be in bearing of them that they may cleanse the land that is to say the multitude of the dead is so great that by way of hyperbole their burial is said to consume seven months the number seven employed by Ezekiel in these passages is replaced by the number a thousand in our present passage with the effect of greatly enhancing the idea of greatness and completeness conveyed when the saints are said to live and reign with Christ a thousand years the idea intended is that of inconceivable exaltation security and blessedness beyond expression of ordinary language a quote from an article the millennium and the apocalypse reprinted in biblical doctrines page 654 similarly Dr. Abraham Kuyper says the numbers and the indications of persons appearing in this book are not actual numbers but figurative numbers there were more than seven churches in Asia Minor we are not to take the number 144,000 as if that was the number of a man of those who were saved first the 1,600 furlongs of the stream of blood which reaches unto the bridles of the horses is not a geographical designation all these figures are to be understood symbolically a quote from an article entitled Chileism or Premillennialism page 28 that Calvin understood the thousand years figuratively is clear beyond doubt he dismisses the idea with one brief reference not long after arose the millenarians who limited the reign of Christ to a thousand years their fiction is too puerile to deserve refutation a quote from his Institutes book 3 chapter 25 section 5 we should point out however that in Revelation 20 the thousand years of verses 1 through 3 and the thousand years of verses 4 through 6 do not relate to the same thing the millennium of verses 1 through 3 relates to a period of the future on earth during which time the devil is bound so that he can no longer deceive the nations the millennium of verses 4 through 6 during which time the souls of them that had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God are living and reigning with Christ relates to the intermediate state for each individual soul it covers that period between death and the resurrection that these souls who are living and reigning with Christ are in the intermediate state is indicated one by the fact that John saw them as souls not as people with bodies two by the fact that they are contrasted with a second group the rest of the dead verse 5 hence both groups must be identified with the dead those who have died in the Lord of which Revelation 14:13 speaks and those who have died in their sins and who therefore have no part in the intermediate reign with Christ and three by the contrast between the expression the first resurrection and another figurative expression the second death verse 14 
No one understands this latter term literally as applying to a second physical death. It is commonly understood as referring to the eternal punishment of the wicked. Similarly, the first resurrection is a figurative expression, and this event, life in the intermediate state, is so called in order to distinguish it from the resurrection of the body which occurs later. Some, however, understand the first resurrection to refer to the regeneration of the soul, that is, to the new birth of the believer, which is followed by a period of sanctification in this life and is crowned by his being taken to heaven to reign with Christ during the period between death and the resurrection. In either case, the thousand years is to be understood symbolically as relating to an indefinitely long period of time. For the Old Testament saints and for those who died in the early part of the Christian era, this reign has already continued much longer than a literal 1,000 years. Chapter 12, page 67 a final apostasy and rebellion. A question which confronts both post and premillennialism is this. Is there to be a brief but worldwide apostasy and rebellion at the end of the millennium? Does the large proportion of the human race, after enjoying the high privileges which come with life during the millennial era, turn violently against God and righteousness and attempt to overthrow the kingdom that has been established? That such is to be the case has usually been the assumption of post and premillennialism alike. So far as amillennialism is concerned, a final rebellion does not present special difficulty because it does not expect a future age of righteousness. Most amillennialists, however, have also expected an apostasy, but on either post or premillennial principles and coming at the very height of the millennial reign, such a development does not seem to be anticlimactic and to present a very unpleasant feature. Whether the millennial age is looked upon as the result and fruitage of a long and costly campaign of world evangelism, as the postmillennialist believes, or whether it is looked upon as a divinely established kingdom with Christ ruling in person in Jerusalem, a general apostasy and rebellion in which the devil is given a worldwide, even though brief triumph, seems to be entirely out of character. Much of the glory of the kingdom would seem to be lost with such a rebellion. The scripture cited in this connection is Revelation 20, verse 3 and verses 7 through 10. After the statement that Satan is to be chained and cast into the abyss for a thousand years so that he should deceive the nations no more, we read, After this he must be loosed for a little time. And when the thousand years are finished, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison and shall come forth to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them together to the war, the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up over the breadth of the earth and compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city, and fire came down out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where are also the beast and the false prophet, and they shall be tormented day and night for ever and ever. This passage contains much figurative language and admittedly is difficult to interpret. However, as stated earlier, we believe that the binding of Satan referred to in verses 1 through 3, so that he can deceive the nations no more, means that the world is to be Christianized. These verses seem clearly to refer to the earth 
since John saw the angel coming down out of heaven, and the devil was bound so that he could deceive the nations no more until the thousand years are finished. Nations relate to earthly life, not to heavenly life. We believe that verses 4 through 6 are parenthetical and that they refer to the intermediate state. It is to be remembered in the first place that the devil already is a defeated and fallen foe and that he cannot tempt nor injure mankind nor do anything else except as he receives permission from God. Premillennialists have a tendency to underrate the power of God and to overrate the power of the devil. Some talk as if the devil were a formidable foe, the god of this world, in a literal sense, contending on practically an equal footing with God and winning many victories. We can never understand the course of this world's events unless we keep in mind that God is the absolute and unchangeable sovereign of all that exists, and that no event, good or bad, great or small, can take place without either his decreative or permissive will. That he does allow much evil that he could prevent if he chose is an undeniable fact. But he limits it, controls it, and overrules it for his own glory and the greater good of his people. He often uses one evil person or power to punish another. The power that the devil and evil people have in this world is like that which the cruel and arrogant king of Assyria exercised toward Israel, who, while pursuing his own plans, was in reality only the instrument of God for the chastisement of Israel. Isaiah 10, verses 5-15 through 15. He was completely in the hands of God and could go as far, but no farther than God chose to allow him to go. This is the only adequate view of the course of history if we are to understand God's dealings with men. All of this is clearly brought out in the story of Job. The devil could not touch Job until given permission and then could do so only within prescribed limits. In that instance, God overruled the devil's evil designs and made use of them to further the sanctification of his servant. By that means, God tested Job's patience, humbled his pride, vanquished his self-confidence, and in the end led Job to trust more deeply in his grace. In the New Testament, we read that God spared not angels when they sinned, the devil included, but cast them down to hell and committed them to pits of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. 2 Peter 2 verse 4 During the public ministry of Jesus, the devil and the demons were immediately subject to his commands. Hence, any interpretation that we make of Revelation 20 must be made on the assumption that the devil is at all times under God's absolute control and subject to his commands. It may well be, however, that just before the end, God does permit a limited manifestation of evil, that it may be seen anew and more clearly what an awful thing sin is and how deserving of punishment. It is quite natural that people who have spent their lives in a comparatively Christian environment, particularly those who have lived during the glorious era, which we call the millennium, would find it almost impossible to believe that the devil and his followers really are as bad as they are said to be, or as deserving of punishment. Hence, just before the final judgment and the assignment of final punishment, the devil is given a degree of freedom. He immediately goes out to gain some followers, and with them makes a last desperate attempt to destroy the kingdom. That he is able to gain some followers should not be thought strange, 
for even during the millennium there remain some who are not Christians. The result is that by his action the devil reveals himself as the same murderous, lying, deceiving character that he was in the beginning. His rebellion shows again, and in a manner that none can fail to understand, what a heinous thing sin is and how deserving of punishment. He goes forth to deceive the nations, that is, extends his activity worldwide and succeeds in gaining a large number of followers, a company which, as seen from the human viewpoint, appears as the sand of the sea. In reality, however, it is a small group compared with that of the saints of the church. The latter are described in Revelation 7, verses 3 and 4 by the symbolical number 144,000. Twelve, the number of the church, squared and multiplied by a thousand to give the idea of vastness and completeness. We are not to think of the outcome of the war spoken of in verses 7 through 10 as ever actually threatening the safety and security of the kingdom, nor as ever being in doubt. Though the devil and his followers are allowed to flaunt themselves in a public demonstration and are very noisy, they are all the time held within strict limits. The rebellion is short-lived, and when it has been allowed to serve its purpose, fire comes down out of heaven and destroys both the devil and his followers. Seen in this light, the short resurgence of evil at the end is in effect a part of, or at least a preparation for, the great final judgment. The overall result is that God uses the event to demonstrate anew to all intelligent beings throughout the universe how righteous and how just are his ways with all his creatures. This final war, of course, has nothing to do with military maneuvers or military weapons or even with geographical locations. It is the last phase of the spiritual warfare that has been raging between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden. It has been shown, we believe, that the great battle described in Revelation 19 verses 11 through 21 is not a military but a spiritual conflict which rages through the centuries. The war against the saints in Revelation 20 verses 7 through 10 is of the same nature, although of much shorter duration. The Lord's people have a place of refuge and safety in the camp of the saints, the beloved city, and not one of them is lost. The camp of the saints and the beloved city of verse 9 quite clearly are figurative expressions referring to the church, which is a source of spiritual strength and wisdom and safety for the saints. The regenerate souls in the true church, as revealed in Revelation 7 verses 3 and 4, are sealed so that they cannot be hurt, that is, so that they cannot be led into apostasy by any of the devil's works. No true saint apostatizes to the service of the devil. All the time they are under divine protection, which is symbolized by the fire that comes down out of heaven and devours their enemies. The weapons used by Satan and his followers are false doctrines, heresies, lies, slander, etc., which are directed against the Lord's people. Those who are not born-again Christians are easy victims of the devil's wiles and become his followers. But true Christians are inwardly prepared and ready to meet any such attack and cannot be hurt by any of these things. Earlier in the New Testament, when writing to the Christians in the church at Ephesus, Paul used similar language and expounded at length the idea that the Christian is inwardly prepared and secure against the attacks of the evil one. 
Put on the whole armor of God, he said, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For, he continues, our wrestling is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against the powers, against the world rulers of this darkness, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Wherefore, take up the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, with all taking up the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, with all prayer and supplication, praying at all seasons in the Spirit, and watching thereunto in all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Ephesians 6, verses 11 through 18. And to the Corinthians he wrote, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but mighty before God to the casting down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that is exalted against the knowledge of God, and bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10 verses 3 through 5 to assume that at the end of the millennium the vast multitude of the saints of God are literally shut up in the city of Jerusalem by their enemies and rendered practically helpless is to assume the absurd. We must ever keep in mind that this is symbolic language, that what we are seeing is not the reality but a vision, a great pageant, and that the material symbols are merely used to set forth spiritual truth. In his recent book, Revelation 20, the Reverend J. Marcellus Kick makes the following comment regarding the loosing of Satan and the warfare against the beloved city. Notice that Satan does not break out of the prison by his own power. He does not break his chains. He is loosed by the Lord. The names of Gog and Magog are used much as we might use the names of Hitler and Nazi after our experience in World War II. Hitler and Nazi bring before our minds cruel armies who wrought much damage. We might well term some future tyrant Hitler and some future nation Nazi horde without having Germans in mind. In Revelation, the names of the old enemies are used to designate new ones. Gog and Magog represent future enemies of the church whose names are as yet unknown. This type of interpretation is taught in Revelation 11, verse 8. And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Sodom and Egypt are spiritualized. Even so, we spiritualize Gog and Magog. It is difficult for some to conceive of the nature of the opposition. The language is so vivid that it is hard for us to realize that this is not a battle of arms, of sword and gun. Our Lord clearly implies that the battle for Christianity is not fought with carnal sword. It is a battle between the true gospel and the false gospel. It is a battle of truth against error. It is a battle of light against darkness. It is not a war against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of the world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. 
they compass the camp of the saints about. The church is likened to a military camp. This is a figure borrowed from the time of Moses and Joshua when the church even externally presented the form of a military camp. The twelve tribes with their banners surrounded the tabernacle on four sides. The camp was in the form of a square of which the four sides were to be placed towards the four quarters of the compass. This was a type of the heavenly city as seen by Ezekiel 48 verse 20 and the city four square of Revelation 21 16. The camp and the city are but different figures of speech to describe the church upon earth. The church in heaven will never be surrounded by enemies such as are pictured to us in Revelation 20. To others this is the literal city of Jerusalem. Just a little thinking will show how impossible this is. Imagine all the armies of the nations of the world laying siege to one city in Palestine. And you must picture modern armies equipped with missiles, bombs, and planes. The land of Palestine could not contain all the armies of the world. This is figurative language. This is the language of the Old Testament to express the enmity of the world against the church. Pages 61 through 66. Commenting on the statement that fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them, Mr. Kick points out that this evidently refers to the second coming of Christ, which occurs at the very close of the millennium. Says he, Since nothing more is written in this prophecy concerning an intervening period between the destruction of Gog and Magog and the resurrection of the dead, this must be the final destructive blow. It is the revealing of Christ as described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7-9. through 9. And to you who are troubled, rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Page 69. It is of further interest in this connection to note that Dr. Warfield believed that there would be no resurgence of evil at all at the end, but rather that at the return of Christ, the present kingdom, then perfected with the conquering of the last enemy, death, will be merged into the eternal kingdom. His view differs somewhat from that which we have set forth in that he understood the entire section of Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10, to refer to the inter- immediate state, while we believe that only verses 4 through 6 so refer. He believed that the thousand years was intended to describe the heavenly bliss of the saints in paradise, in contrast with which the trial time of the church on earth is described by the term a little time, verse 3. This view made it possible for him to hold that there was no apostasy or rebellion at all at the close of the golden age of righteousness and peace. As a post-millennialist, he believed that the world is to be converted to Christianity before the return of Christ, but he based his view on Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21, and on the intimations in Romans 11 and 1 Corinthians 15, rather than on Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10. He says concerning Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10, The picture that is brought before us here is the picture of the intermediate state of the saints of God gathered in heaven away from the confused noises and garments bathed in blood that characterizes the war upon earth 
in order that they may securely await the end. The thousand years thus is the whole of this present dispensation, which again is placed before us in its entirety, but looked at now relatively, not to what is passing on the earth, but to what is enjoyed in paradise. This, in fact, is the meaning of the symbol of a thousand years. For this period between the events is, on earth, a broken time, three and a half years, a little time, verse 3, which amid turmoil and trouble the saints are encouraged to look upon as of short duration, soon to be over. To the saints in bliss it is, on the contrary, a long blessed period passing slowly and peacefully by while they reign with Christ and enjoy the blessedness of holy communion with him a thousand years. Of course the passage, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, does not give us a direct description of the intermediate state. We must bear in mind that the book we are reading is written in symbols and gives us a direct description of nothing that is set before us, but always a direct description of the symbol by which it is represented. In the preceding vision, chapter 19, verses 11 through 21, we had no direct description of the triumph and progress of the gospel, but only of a fierce and gruesome war. The single phrase that spoke of the slain sword as proceeding out of the mouth of the conqueror alone, indicating that it was a conquest by means of persuading words. So here we are not to expect a direct description of the intermediate state. It is a description in the form of a narrative. The element of time and chronological succession belong to the symbol, not to the thing symbolized. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- 450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship, 
in which they absurdly exercise themselves, would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.